They dragged me to the plane, and I'm with the same plane. We landed in Milan with the same plane. They put me back to the Barcelona. And then the stewardess says, what happened? You were, you were just now? I said, I don't know. They didn't let me go in. I'm Shada Omidvar, and this is The Hopeful, Episode 4, Patience. My dad has now been deported back to Spain twice within a time span of just a few weeks. In our last episode, we heard about his return from Mexico City on an airplane ride of a lifetime with Libya Montez and a failed attempt to move to Italy to join a childhood friend in Rome. Beaten and beat down, he returns to Barcelona. And I went back to the house. My friend, he was in shock and disappointed for me to go back again because I felt afterwards, I mean, I felt it then. He just wanted to get rid of me because I was burdened to him. I mean, it was just inconvenient for him. My money did just about ran out. And I had three other roommates, three bedroom, three other roommates. I used to sleep on the floor anyways, but the other roommates started complaining about me. He's staying here, you know, he's, he's, he's running out of the money. It can uh, go anywhere. There's no chance. Get, uh, we cannot carry him forever. So I had no other choice. So I phoned to my brother. I said, you know, I'm thinking uh, to turn myself in because I run out of the money. I don't think I can go anywhere else or I don't think I can do anything because uh, practically I have no money left. And these people are threatening me to throw me on the street. My brother says, no, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll manage something. You went this far, you went, uh, you went this far and stayed this long. We'll manage, we'll send you some money. And obviously, they had themselves had the hard time. They, they had no money or they didn't have the money to spare, in other words. My dad is talking about his brother, Hossein. We heard about him in episode one when he took on the role of taking care of the family after my grandfather died. I had the chance to ask him some questions over FaceTime. He still lives in Tehran, so we spoke in Farsi. I was most interested to know if he remembers this phone call. He called and told me he came back from Mexico. He was in a very bad shape. All his money was gone, and they sent him back to Spain. He was devastated. He told me, I don't even have anything to eat. It was very hard. We couldn't even send money for him. I talked with Amir a lot those days. I comforted him and told him, don't worry, everything will be fine. It will be okay. But to be honest, I wasn't feeling good myself either. Those were bad days for all of us. This is actually one of the worst memories I have from his whole journey. So, week went by, and these people decided to pull a plug on me, and they, they, they asked me to leave. I said, but guys, I don't have money. I, I, where would I go? Uh, I, I can't, I have no money. I have no place to go. Uh, they really didn't care. They said, no, you have to leave. So whatever I had, a uh, few clothing, whatever I had, I packed up, I went down the street. I slept on the street the first night. I had very little money left. So what I did, I walked around all day long in Barcelona streets, 
and uh, buy a piece of bread and uh, eat that one that bread for a day. Or have uh, there was a restaurant, you know, cheapest restaurant in Barcelona, downtown Barcelona. You could have a one a plate of macaroni for a dollar fifty or two dollar back then for four days. I slept on the street and I ate like that to manage like that. So until I phoned my fa- uh, my brother, I said, "No, I'm coming back." And he insisted, "No, don't come back." I said, "Brother, you have no idea. I'm hungry. I'm sleeping on the street. I have no place to go." He said, "No, we'll find you. We'll find a ways. Don't don't come." I said, "You don't know what what does it feel like." Uh, you know, sleeping on the street and uh, in a cardboard, in a metro, in a, in a in the parks and all that, it is not fun. I know I can't do it. He said, no, uh, insist on it, stay, we'll find a ways. I asked my Amu Hossein if he ever considered telling my dad to go back to Iran, to throw in the towel and return. They told him, if you tolerate this, you will succeed. Reach out to anyone you know, friends, acquaintances, whoever. I invited him to be patient because I knew if he had failed at that journey, he would have been devastated all his life. I felt he could do it and I just needed to push him. I talked to him a lot those days. I'd been giving him positive energy and insisting that these shall pass and his patience will pay back. I knew I knew if he had come back, his life would have ruined forever. But maybe what happened to him made him stronger and made him think a little bit more about his further steps. I told him, you don't need to rush now. Exiting Iran was hard enough for you. Now you have time to observe and see what is the best way for you and how you should approach to to be able to succeed. It's evident in this moment between these two brothers that my Amu Hossein has honored their father's dying wishes. The responsibility of caring for his siblings, not only financially, but emotionally, is done so genuinely, I can really feel from this story that Hossein is playing the role of a father to my dad. And like an obedient son, my dad takes his advice. Up to this point, my dad was making moves in a rush as if he had tunnel vision and the only thing he could see at the end of the tunnel was the U.S., I've lived long distance from most of my relatives since I moved to Toronto in 2008. And anytime someone calls me upset about something, there's only so much I can do aside from offer some comforting words. It's easy to feel helpless. Lately, I try to remember the advice my dad got from his brother and I tell anyone who needs to hear it, myself included, just be strong, be patient, and never give up. Trying to help in any way he can from so far away, Amo Hossein finally gets a hold of a contact who can help my dad in Spain. This person's name is also Amir. Amir lived with another man named Nader, and he too would play a big part in helping my dad. My brother found friend of their friend that were living outside uh, Barcelona, a place called Uret de Mar. He said, here's the phone number, contact them, and then they will help you out. So I phoned uh, uh, Amir and, and Nadir as well. And I told him the situation. They offered the help right away. He said, no problem. So I took the bus to their town. They come pick me up from the bus station and they took me to their home. And they said, stay as long as you want. We have nothing, but we are like you. 
We just get by whatever they have a laundry mart. Uh, stay as long as you want. We have a room here. You can share. Just stay as long as you want. Don't worry about it. Whatever we have, we share. So I, you know, in all, I stayed with them uh, for a month, and uh, the money came in from my uh, sister. I, I found out my sister, when my older sister, when borrowed the money, they send the money. He's talking about my Amma Muluk, whom you heard from in episode one. She's the one who talked about being married at a very young age. I asked her about how she got the money to send my dad. She had taken out a loan from the bank without her husband's knowledge. Since she didn't have a job, she needed a guarantor. Scared of what her husband would say or do, Muluk was begging the bank to let her take out the loan without a guarantor. Someone in the bank overheard and generously offered to sign their name to help her out. I didn't even know the guy who helped us. He didn't know me, but he was kind to accept on being my guarantor. I could just give him the wrong address and disappear after getting money, but he trusted me. Finally, we got the money and passed it to the neighbors so they can give it to Amir. Hossein also did the same thing and sent some money. Emma Hossein was able to secure a loan on his own because he had a steady job, so the bank knew he'd have some way of repaying the money. Only being a few years after the revolution, the economy in Iran was still very unstable and many of my family members were just getting by. It might not be that no one wanted to help, but no one could help. Emma Muluk and Emma Hossein did their absolute best to try and support their brother. Now I had to pay back the money to the bank and I was all alone. I started going to Bazaar and asked the clothing manufacturers to give me clothes so I can sew them in the house. The pay was very low, but I had to do it. I used to get on the bus with my child and go to Bazaar and get these big plastic bags full of clothes to bring home and then take them back. One rainy day, one of these bags got ripped over the raceway and the water took all the clothes with. I just sat there in the middle of the street and cried. I knew that now I have to pay for all those clothes. So I went back to the manufacturer crying. His name was Hussein and I explained the situation. I was worried that he thinks I have kept the clothes for myself. He told me that he trusts me and it's okay. I don't need to pay any fine. With the help of his brother and sister, my dad was able to start thinking of his next attempt to get to the U.S. Uh, in the meantime, uh, people says, why don't you go to Canada? Forget about the U.S. because U.S. is not working out for you. Why don't you go to Canada? It just didn't appeal to me. I thought, mm, you know, I'd rather go to U.S. than Canada. So a few hundred dollars plus came in, but it wasn't enough for me to do go anywhere. So in the meantime, we were in Yoredamar uh, for a month or so with Nader and Amir. I helped out in the store, in the laundromat in the, in the morning. We opened up for a bit during the day for a business and then we closed for lunch for a few hours. And then it was fine. It was okay. But I knew I can not carry this one for long. My dad finds out about a group of Iranian guys who hang out in the cafeteria of a school. They were all in a similar boat as him. He starts meeting up with them whenever he can to chat, ask about jobs, and exchange advice about what countries are accepting refugees. Kind of like an in-person Reddit forum. So one day we were sitting uh, at a table and I, I complained, said, I can't believe it, I cannot get a job here. One of the guys says, oh, 
there's an Iranian restaurant looking for a dishwasher. Would you mind uh, doing a, a dishes? I said, no, I don't mind at all. I mean, as long as I, I earn some money, I, I don't mind it. So he introduced me to the guy. And uh, the guy says, no problem. When can you start? I said, anytime I can start. He said, you can start tomorrow if you like. So I went back to Yura de Mar. I said to them, I got a job. And then I came to Barcelona, got myself a place to stay in a hostel, in a room. And then I started working in a restaurant as doing a dish, uh, dishwasher. This group was the source for all kinds of advice and refugee life hacks. My favorite one is about a payphone hack one of the guys discovered. My dad casually mentioned it during one of our interviews, and I was immediately curious. One guy came up with the idea how to you to hack the system, how to make a phone call, and uh, uh, use the payphone, hack the phone. So we found a way how to do it. That's why I was keeping making all these phone calls for free. And then I phoned my brother again. My brother gave me a phone number. Well, wait, you have to tell us how you hacked the system. Was it one particular phone or you could do it to any other phone? Well, any pay phone. So what happened was one Iranian guy, or I think it was the Iranian guy, took the whole pay phone, stole the pay phone, <laughs> took it home, opened it up, and then figured out how to do it. So how he did it was, imagine he get a toonie, and then he poked a hole in the toonie, and then he measured the five times the length of five times diameter of the uh, the toonie with a fishing line. He poked the hole through. He tied a knot on that hole, and then he five times and he pushed it through. And then we cut the end of the pen as it to hook so not to go down. So you throw that uh, money into the payphone. As soon as the other side picks up the phone, the money goes in, then you keep fishing it back up. Hmm. So basically your your finger or your index finger, it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So while the money goes in, you fish it out again. Money goes into the thing, it passes the, uh, passes the hole, wherever water was, then you fish it back up again. This group also exchanged information they'd hear about support from the UN or notices of an immigration lawyer taking appointments, like when the UN announced they'd be running a program to provide refugees in Spain with $150 a month. That guy says, why don't you apply for this uh, UN? I said, no, I, I'd rather work. Two weeks or, or so into my uh, working, the owner of the restaurant came says, why don't you stay in uh, at, the, at the restaurant, sleep by the restaurant, because you're here six days a week anyway, and you just go to sleep, and you're spending, I don't know, I can't remember how much was it back then, $10, $15 a night for a hostel. Why don't you stay here and save that money? So I thought, great, I'll, uh, why not? I'll do that. To today's standards, $15 a night seems like a sweet deal. You can easily spend more on breakfast. Sometimes a latte and a croissant in Toronto costs that much. But for my dad, every penny was better off saved for his next attempt to the U.S. However, there would be other costs to living where he works and in a restaurant, no less. But the money was, came very slow because I was getting $100 a month for uh, doing the dishes. And then the ticket was cost 1000 bucks, or a ticket was more than 1000 bucks, or you want to hire a lawyer to get you a U.S. visa was like $3,000, $4,000 for application. But I still took their offer. 
I stayed in a restaurant. Let's do some quick math. My dad was making $100 a month and needed to save up about $5,000 from plane ticket and lawyer fees. If he didn't spend a dime, it would take him over four years to finish saving. Can you imagine living where you work for four years? The only problem I had was a restaurant. You work in the kitchen, hot, sweaty and all that. Where would I take a shower? Where would I wash myself? And I asked the owner, owner says, oh, we can go to, to the guys, uh, friends of whatever hotel or you can whatever. You can do that. But it, was, it wasn't like any practical. It wasn't just like, I can't just go to anybody's hotel or friend's hotel to do the, uh, take the shower. So uh, after two nights staying there, I tried to take a shower in the kitchen, in the restaurant. And I looked to the left, to the right, and I said, how am I going to wash myself? So I warmed up some water on the stove. I stand uh, in the kitchen floor in the restaurant naked. And I started to wash myself. And I cried, and I cried so hard. And that time, I second-guessed myself whether this is worth it or not. Why am I doing this? I had a home. I had a people who loved me. I was surrounded uh, with the mothers and sisters and brothers who loved me unconditionally. What am I doing this for? Why am I going through the, all this torture from the jail, hungry, and then now in the kitchen, taking a shower in the kitchen? Why? Why did I, I question myself? This is really worth it? This is really, this is what you're looking for? Where this is going to end? I sat down. The only thing I said to myself, I never forget. It's not going to stay like this. It's going to get better. Oh, that was the hope I gave myself. And I promised myself. I said, you should never give up. It will never stay like this. It'll get better. This is only temporary. If you give up now, then what? Then you can go back where it was. Things is going to be stay the same. You will never excel. You never advance. So don't give up. My dad lived in that kitchen for 14 months. One night, the cook quit and my dad filled in at the last minute and the restaurant owner recognized that he had some good skills. He became so good at cooking that the owner asked him to run the kitchen. The owner told him he's getting a raise, but it wasn't what my dad was expecting. So he saved himself quite a bit of money and at the same time, he only gave me a $50 raise. Obviously, I was devastated. I was so disappointed. But 14 months into my working and I saved I did not buy myself a shirt, pants, socks, or nothing. I saved every penny as possible. During his time in Barcelona, my dad worked all the time. He even lived at his work. He was constantly working. He couldn't afford to drink alcohol or go to nightclubs regularly. But once in a while, he went out with a couple of friends. I asked him if he considered getting back into dating. I mean, after all, he's just 22. He deserved to have some bit of fun on his days off. I tried, but it didn't work because I couldn't afford to spend money go to the nightclubs. 
or drink alcohol, whether it's a cover charge or expensive, but uh, obviously if they were sneaking or we knew somebody, the bouncer at the door, they would let us in. But uh, one time it came to mind, we were in a nightclub sitting around, all other Iranian guys, you know, they were financially comfortable, they were drinking, I was just hanging around with them. The girl approached me and asked me if I would like to dance. I said, sure, why not, we'll dance. I, by then I started speaking Spanish, no, uh, Spanish, okay. So we started to dance and then we exchanged a phone number. She phoned me the next day at work, we talked, and then we went out uh, for a date. Uh, the next day we had the coffee and uh, the third day again the story with the I shouldn't say all of them but in general the Spanish girl if you date once or twice the third time they expect you to, uh, to show your home or uh, go home have a coffee or drink or whatever, uh, whatever. I didn't do that so the girl kind of got suspicious why am I not doing this? So one day you know, during the lunchtime, while I was in the kitchen doing clean up, the waiter came in. He said, oh, I mean, you have a visitor. I said, me visitor? I don't know anybody. She said, yeah, there's a lady sitting at a bar uh, asking for you. I picked out through the door. Sure enough, it was her, the girl I, I just um, dated twice. So I changed my clothes. I went to the bar and I said to her, surprise, you know, what's up? What are you doing here? She said, oh, I just want to make sure where you work or whatever. And then we had a drink and she left. So same day at almost midnight, the phone rang. I used to sleep in a restaurant. So I thought midnight is probably my family is calling from Iran. So I picked up the phone and I was her. She said, Oh my God, you sleep in the restaurant? I said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just, I'm working late, cleaning up. She said, no, I had um, I had the suspicions you're sleeping in the restaurant. I said, no, I'm not, but yes, I am. It is what it is. So, and after that, I never heard back again from her. I tried to contact her a number of times. She never answered my phone. I never heard, I never saw her again. So at that moment on, I didn't even bother anymore because I knew no girl would like to uh, see the guy or dating a guy who sleeps in the restaurant, works in the restaurant. So I wasn't good enough. As I mentioned before, the cafeteria forum would sometimes tell each other about an immigration lawyer in town taking on new cases. Whenever my dad would hear about this, He'd find out what hotel the lawyer was staying at and would rush to their lobby and wait to try and get a meeting to see if they'll take on his case. Normally, these lawyers would charge anywhere between $3,500 to $5,000, but my dad was far from that in savings. Oh, I thought if I can plead with them, they will take care of my case for uh, you know, $1,000 what I had saving, but no one was interested to look at it, or look at even my file. So after... 18 months working in the kitchen and the restaurant, I decided to change a direction, come to Canada. When I spoke with my Emma Hossein, he told me about some letters he kept that my dad sent to him while he was in Spain. My dad didn't even remember sending these. I was so excited to hear about these letters because, like I mentioned in the previous episode, 
My dad didn't have any kind of memorabilia from this time. I wish so much that he kept that $1 bill that Libya Montez gave him or his little notebook. Aside from a handful of photos, the only evidence of this time I've had my whole life is my dad's word, until my uncle sent over the letters. They were written in Farsi, so I got someone to translate them as soon as I could so I could read what they said. Memory is a funny thing. 37 years later, my dad can recall the events and the feelings he was experiencing, but when he read these letters again, he had completely forgotten the words on the page and the emotions he described to his brother. I asked my dad if he could read one of them for us, and it was like I was asking him to speak to his younger self. Salam Baradar Hussain. I'm wishing you and your family all the health. I know you guys miss one person in the family this year, but I'm sure you'll think about me wherever I will be, and no matter how far I am from you guys, my heart and my soul will always be with all of you. Hossein John, I don't think there is a way out for me, even with an immigration lawyer and all the expenses and all their stuff. With this situation, I can get enough cash, but I will work as hard as as possible to save money. You once told me escaping from the country was somehow me escaping from myself, but for me, it's more than that. Osenjan, I want you to know I will try my best to prove how a son of the gardener can achieve big thing in life. At the end, I wish you all the health, especially mom. Please let her know. Sincerely yours. With only a glimmer of hope, my dad still had his heart set on the U.S. He gave up on the idea of getting a lawyer. He couldn't fathom the idea of enduring this life for over four years just to save up for their fees. But he had a new plan. He thought if he could make it to Canada first, he might have an easier time entering the U.S. afterwards. So I saved up enough money for a ticket and to find a ways go to Canada because a lot of people used to come to Canada and then use Canada as a passing and then go illegally to, or with a family or friends, they go to U.S. So that was the one way of getting to U.S. I found a guy who would do the, uh, the passport. Obviously, Canada needed the passport, I mean visa. And with the foreign passport, I just got to hop on the plane land in Canada, and in Canada, you can cross the U.S. So I saved up enough money for a ticket and for a passport. When got to Barcelona, got my ticket, and uh, I thought it was time to leave. Through his cafeteria forum friends, my dad was able to purchase a counterfeit Italian passport. It was actually a real passport that had been altered to change certain information. I asked my dad, where did these passports come from? But he just replied and said, don't ask and don't tell. So now, with a new passport in hand and a flight from Barcelona to Montreal via Madrid, my dad was feeling prepared to leave once again. It's evident at this point in the story that Amo Hossein's advice has sunk in and my dad is taking every next step with care and consideration. He's learned from some mistakes and is correcting them in time for his next attempt. It's also worth considering what his life in Barcelona has been like up to this point a life in total limbo. 
Without immigration status, my dad had no health care, no protection of his rights at work. If he was ever sick, I doubt he got paid. And what if he got into an accident? Any medical bills would be paid out of pocket, something that would without a doubt bankrupt his savings. All he had to protect himself was a new language. I promised myself after Milan, I would never leave anywhere until I understand or I started speaking any one language because lack of uh, speaking of language, it was it was a tremendous difference. If I knew, I could, I could understand, the communicate. I blamed it myself uh, on myself not for speaking any language. So that's where I am because I couldn't speak or defend myself, in other words. So now by then I was speaking nicely or almost fluent Spanish. Uh, and then this, I said, this is the time to go. I think about this idea of language a lot, especially for new refugees who arrive in Canada. I've been witness to so many situations between someone with English as their first language and someone with English as their second or maybe third. And the fluent speaker either gets frustrated and loses their patience, that or the conversation is quickly dismissed because of the language barrier. My dad is right. How can someone properly defend themselves when they don't have all of the words to be able to do so? My dad often took the bus between Yorat de Mar and Barcelona. And one of these bus rides would change his life forever. He was going to Barcelona to run some errands one day, and he overheard a conversation between some passengers. Just barely understanding, he noticed they were speaking English. And then he noted two of them say that they are from Canada. Right away, my alert thing rang. I said, oh my God, these people are from Canada. That's great. I can get some information. Where am I going? Give me some hints or some direction. Uh, Where would I go? I mean, I had absolutely nobody in Canada. Where would I I go? Where did I start from? Um, But just to go, just to get my footing or settle so I can cross to U.S. When they arrived in Barcelona and got off the bus, my dad tried to approach them, but he panicked. He didn't speak English, and they didn't speak Spanish. So he went about his day, and a few hours later, he got back on the bus to return to Yorat de Mar. I saw them again in the same bus. I said, oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, the whole day they did uh, their errands or sightseeing, we end up being the same bus going back again to uh, to Yorat de Mar. So again, we got to Yorat de Mar. Yorat de Mar is about one hour away drive from Barcelona. We got to Euro de Mar. We got off uh, a bus in Euro de Mar. Trying again, approach them. I was too shy, too embarrassed to do it. So I let go. I went home. I told another, another. I met, I heard some uh, couple. They were from Canada. And I was, I didn't know how to approach them. They didn't speak Spanish. I didn't know how to approach them. He said, oh, you should have brought them here. Now they used to live in England. He spoke, he spoke fluent uh, English. And I said, no, I, I was too embarrassed. Uh, anyways, uh, it's gone. and I'm leaving in two days anyway, so don't worry about it. The next day, we closed the shop. We went for lunch at the bar. Like I said, uh, Spanish, they closed for siesta for three, four hours a day. So we went to the bar. We had lunch. We were watching some movie. And now they asked me if we can go open up the store. I said, sure, no problem. So I, I went out and I saw this couple on the street. Okay, so my dad is talking about the same couple that he's already seen twice. What are the odds? It was surely kismet that they'd meet again. They're looking around. I went 
approached them with a little English I spoke. I said, can I help you? They said, they're looking for a laundromat. I said, oh, that's ours. I ran inside a bar. I, I grabbed another. I said, another. They're outside. They're looking for laundromat. Oh, another ran inside. We uh, approached them. They took into a story. We're just around the corner from the bar. Nader helped explain my dad's situation to this couple. Their names were Shahina and Mo Peru. Nader told them about how my dad got to Spain, why he left Iran, and what he was trying to achieve by going to Canada. Shahina and Mo were immediately captivated and offered to help in any way that they could. We've got this young man that approached us. That was your dad, Amir. This is Shahina. I was able to connect with her after a quick Facebook search for her name while writing the podcast. She now lives in Vancouver, and before our interview, we had never met, but I knew so much about her from my dad's stories. When we first met was our first trip into Spain right. in, I think, 1980. We were celebrating my husband's 30th birthday or something, and asked if we could please go to a laundromat where his friends spoke English because he wanted to share his story and told us about the revolution that had happened and how he had to run. And uh, if he went back, he surely would, you know, they would get him and it it wouldn't be good results. And I don't know what it was. Um, My heart just bled for him. I saw the fear in his eyes. I saw he was just a young, young man lost and had a whole life to live. But some, you know, it's because of the circumstances he he had, he was able to escape. So when we went and they told us the story, I told my husband, we need to help this young man, whatever it takes. My dad and the Perus then start planning his next departure. Without any time to go through the process of formally sponsoring him, they figure the best option would be for my dad to change his flight to match theirs. Their flight was from Barcelona to London Heathrow, then to Vancouver. They figure if he landed in Vancouver at the same time, then they could state a case for sponsoring my dad once they were in customs. My dad's original flight is to Montreal, so Nader drives them all to Barcelona, where my dad can change his flight to land in Vancouver at the same time as the Perus. It's worth noting that at the time, the Perus were living outside of Vancouver in a town called Vernon. So we changed a ticket, they left for England, the next day, I left for England. So now I'm showing my Italian passport because we bought a ticket going from London to, from Barcelona, London to Turkey with Iranian passport. And we also bought a ticket from uh, Barcelona, London to Vancouver. So I entered with the, my Italian, if it worse come to worse. And then I show I'm going to Turkey if anything happens. I'm not a destination to uh, Vancouver because I can stay in the transit. I can show the ticket I'm going to Turkey, so I don't need a visa. What my dad is saying here is he mapped out two travel routes. He had a backup plan in case he was stopped in customs again and asked about visas. The first route would take him all the way through to Vancouver with an Italian passport. Or if he got stopped and questioned at customs, he'd have a flight booked to Turkey and he'd show his Iranian passport. The goal was to get past customs by any means possible. All that stood between him and his path to Canada was a customs desk. And since officer said, you have to go through the custom, I show my Italian passport. And they got suspicious. They started asking questions. And 
my hand started to shake, they got suspicious. They took me inside, they strip searched me, they found my Iranian passport too. The guy cursed me, oh, son of a bitch, sent me to the uh, a room. Within an hour or so, a lady came. Lady said uh, in Spanish, uh, we just want to confirm you're Iranian. I want you to speak Farsi because I speak Farsi. So I spoke Farsi. The lady says, no, I understand now you're Iranian. No, we're going to have to send you back, but we don't know where, either to Turkey or to Barcelona. Barcelona requires a visa. You have no visa to go back as Iranian. I'm not too sure what we're going to do with you. They said, no, you cannot go to Canada and cried the whole way home thinking, okay, it just wasn't meant to be. We were actually going to go to um, Morocco when we met him in, in uh, Loretta Mar. But when this all happened, we only had three days on our trip. And I said, let's just, we can do Morocco another time. Let's just see what we can do. Um, so with all the phone calls and whatever we needed to do, this was not successful. They kept me for two days in uh, uh, custom in uh, England. After two days, they said to me, they came, they said, you have about two options. You can go to Barcelona, you go or go back to Turkey. I said, no, I'm not going back to Turkey. I, for 20 months or so, whatever uh, I suffered, I'm not gonna go back to square one. I'll go to Spain. But they said, you have no visa. That's, uh, that's, that's up to Barcelona customs or immigration, it's up to them whether they're going to keep you or they're going to deport you. There's no guarantee. I said, no, I'll take my chance. I go to Barcelona. I don't want to go back to Turkey. Going back to Turkey, 20 months of the work, 20 months of uh, suffering, 20 months of saving money, they're all going to be uh, just flushed down the toilet. I am not going to go back. So they said, okay, fine, we'll send you back to Barcelona, but it's up to them. I said, I'll take my chances. So two days later, they put him in a plane. They sent me back to Barcelona. When we landed in Barcelona, there were two officers that were waiting for me. They were expecting me. They got me. They take me to the customs because I didn't, I didn't have visa. And then I waited and I waited uh, in an office. And then all my passports, all of my documentation was on just the arms rich and an exit door was only 20 feet away. How many times I, I thought about it, I grabbed those papers, ran away towards the exit door. Personally, I wonder if maybe this was a test, not by God this time, but by the customs officers. And I thought, no, I'll wait, just see what happens. From the distance, I saw their supervisors coming. Typical Spanish man, he had a cigarette in it on his mouth, have a few glasses of wine, and then the, the half his shirt was out his pants. It was just down to earth, man. I said, oh, my God, this is my guy. This is my man. And as soon as he came, I said, hola. He said, hola, mi hijo, my son. As soon as he said, hola, my son, I knew this man is as nice. And he asked me what happened, and I told him what happened. I was going to visit my mother I didn't tell him the story of I was trying to go in through the, obviously, with the illegal passport. I was going to visit my mother in Turkey. They, the English didn't 
let me go. He said, he cursed the English. He said, I know this bastard. I hate those bastard British. I know what happened. It, it cost you so much money. Don't worry, my son. Go. Go home. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. I came out the uh, airport within shock and awe, and I cried my eyes out. I could not believe the guy let me in without a visa. Did you resort to praying again? No, not that time, but I was just, again, I, the last thing was in my mind, just the praying. But all I was just, I cannot believe it. This man was a godsend, whoever was sent. This man was so sympathetic with me to let me go. I phoned Amir and Nader. I said, Amir, I'm out. I'm coming back. And Amir and Nader said, are you serious? He let actually let you go? I said, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to take the next bus coming to Yura Demar. By some miracle, yet again, the officer allows my dad to stay in Barcelona despite the fact that he doesn't have a visa. I took the bus, went back to Yura Demar. And Amir opened the door. He hugged me. He cried, and I cried. The cry was not like for deportation. The cry was all the money I saved for 20 months, it was all gone. There was absolutely no money left. I couldn't do anything anymore. 20 months of doing the dishes, sleep on the, in the restaurant, not doing anything, it was all gone. Next time on The Hopeful. He said, which passport do you want? Which nationality do you want? Just grab it and go. You suffered enough in here for the last two years. My uh, paycheck was $300 a month. The rent, $250 pay, I had to live with $50 a month. It wasn't enough to eat properly. So I got so upset, I hung up the phone. And I started walking. And I walked, and I walked. No one picked me up. I walked for 54 kilometers. It took me almost nine and a half hours, 10 hours. And I said, to myself, I have absolutely nobody to call. Within a few minutes, I heard a gunshot. I docked, I said, my God, what was that gunshot for? Third step, I heard a crack. I turned around to go back. As soon as I made a move, the branch gave away. I felt maybe 10 feet, and I heard a crack. The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network, written and created by myself and Portia Larley, It's produced by Claire Brassard, sound mixing by Ryan Clark. And our original theme song, the one you're hearing right now, is by Ench. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Special thanks to my Ame Muluk and Amu Hossein, Shahina Peru, Banafsha Taharian and Waria Havari for voiceover, and Semko Salehi for translations. I'm Shada Omidvar. Fabarna Mayabad be Umida Didar.